Father, we do glory in you and all your provisions for of you, from you, through you, to you are all things. And Father, it's to you that we desire all the glory to go. Father, I pray that you would feed us with your word this morning, that you would nourish our souls and enable us by your grace to respond to that word in ways in which uh, you would be lifted up and honored. Father, I pray that you would anoint my lips and uh, that uh, your word uh, would work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We've gotten up to verse 29. This is the inerrant, infallible Word of God written for our edification. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the humiliation of Christ, and we saw how foolish it is to be ashamed of the cross. Uh, Because to be ashamed of Jesus means we miss out on the Father's joy in his Son. We miss out on the fullness of joy that verse 28 talks about. And for that matter, we miss out on life altogether. Today, we're going to be looking at the exaltation of Jesus. But before we get there, I want to look at a phrase that keeps coming up over and over again in the book of Acts. And since I haven't commented on it so far, I figured this was as good a time as any to do it. Uh, This is kind of a rabbit trail before we even get on the trail, okay? (laughs) Before we get on the trail of the ascension of Christ. And so let's uh, look at verse uh, 29. The phrase, men and brethren. Here's the question. Why do the apostles constantly address the men? They do so over and over again. You see that in verse 14, men of Judea. You see it in verse 22, men of Israel. You see it again in verse 29, men and brethren. You saw it in chapter 1 when he addresses the church. There's clearly women there, and yet he addresses the men. Those phrases occur over and over again in this book. Or, um, sometimes, I counted 51 times in Acts, despite the fact that there are women present, he speaks of men. 
Um, and that was not just amongst the Jews. In Acts 17, Paul says, men of Athens. In Acts 19, he says, men of Ephesus. Nor is this unique to the book of Acts. In fact, it is so pervasive through the Bible. One commentator said the Bible is only addressed to men. Now, that's not true. That's wrong. Uh, but that was the impression that he got. There are passages like 1 Peter 3, for example, that address the wives and Ephesians 6, which address the children. And uh, I feel uh, quite comfortable in addressing men, women, and children in, in my sermons. But it is interesting that those passages are rare. Even Proverbs 31, which is a marvelous, marvelous description of the ideal woman, is addressed not to women, it's addressed to King Lemuel. It's an odd thing. He tells King Lemuel, or his mother actually tells King Lemuel, don't be going after loose women. I want you to seek a godly wife, and who can find a virtuous woman, for her price is far above rubies. All right? And so the question is, why this description of the virtuous woman to a man? has mystified many people. In fact, if you look at some of the very new translations that are gender-neutral Bibles, like the TNIV, when uh, they look at passages like this, uh, men and brethren, they translate it as brothers and sisters. Uh, and yet that's totally missing out on the purpose for why God has, uh, has done this. I believe that there are several reasons, and none of them have anything to do with the false charge that feminists bring against the Bible, that the Bible is not interested in women and children. That is absolutely not true. This book, every country that it has penetrated has elevated the, the status of women and of children. It's very interested in women and children, but God invented patriarchy as the best means of ministering to women and to children. And... Um, <clears throat> Biblical patriarchy fights just as much against selfish chauvinism as it does against selfish feminism. Those are both extremes. Biblical patriarchy in the middle uh, has the best interests of the whole family in mind. But the question still comes up. Okay, I understand that. But still, I don't understand why he always is addressing the men. The short answer is that they are the heads of the families and God ordinarily addresses the whole family through the patriarch. You can see that in Jeremiah 44, where he holds the men accountable for the sins of their wives, and he treats them not just as individuals, but as family units. If you bypass the patriarch, all kinds of problems are going to develop. If you bypass the family as a governmental unit, all kinds of problems are going to result. Now, here's the problem. We are so immersed in our culture of individualism in America that this short answer doesn't make a lick of sense to most Americans, does it? So I want to give you a little bit longer, even though it's a short phrase I'm commenting on, I want to give you a little bit of a longer answer. The first reason is actually hinted at in this chapter, and, and that is that God is interested in capturing entire families, not just individuals. And the most efficient and effective means of doing that is through the Father. Let's just look at the issue of evangelism, okay, uh, that's going on in this chapter. Even if you were total pragmatists who could care less about the theology of the Bible, all you wanted to do is what works, okay? We're not pragmatists, right? Uh, but if you were, you would have to conclude that evangelizing men should be the top priority of the church if you wanted to reach the women and the children, 
Let me, let me phrase that in a different way. If you wanted to reach every man, woman, and child on planet Earth, your top priority should be to reach the men in order to reach the, the women and the children. Uh, you're going to see this pattern all the way through the book of Acts with one possible exception, and that's the woman Lydia. And uh, maybe he put that in there so that we wouldn't be legalists. But I don't think that even that's an exception because she was the head of her household, was she not? And her household came to faith as Paul preached uh, to her. And so it's really a household issue. I don't think it's an exception. But I've read quite a number of statistical studies on evangelism that has gone on in this country and in other countries. And here's the consensus. If the child is the first one in that family that is led to the Lord, there is a 3.5% probability that the rest of the family will come to Christ. You can look at Child Evangelism Fellowship. You can look at any of the other ministries that focus on children. You will not find a whole lot of deviation from that statistic. 3.5% chance. Now, that doesn't mean we can't engage in child evangelism. But in terms of priorities, it's not very successful, less than 4%. Now, if the mother is the first in the family to come to Christ, there is a 17% probability that the rest of the family will come. So in 17% of the cases where a woman comes to Christ, the rest of her family comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Now, that's a huge improvement, but let me tell you something. It ought to scare the daylights out of you if you're a woman who's tempted to marry an unbeliever thinking, I'll just lead him to Christ later on. That's just not the way God works. Okay, so don't even fall into that trap of thinking. Uh, in fact, I, I, my guess is it happens less through those kind of compromises than when they're already unbelievers and married and they come to Christ. But anyway, contrast that with evangelism that focuses on men. When the man of the household is the first to come to Christ, there is a 93% probability that the rest of the family will come. And these statistics have been true despite the fact, despite the fact that most of the efforts of evangelical churches over the past 100 years have been focused on leading women and children to Christ. And most of the money that has been spent over the past 100 years have been to try to lead women and children to Christ, and it's been a failure. Now, I find that remarkable. I find that remarkable. Those statistics have held true despite that. Now, hear me. Peter did not engage in this method of evangelism because of pragmatism. Um, It's true, it works. God's ways always work. And to the degree we deviate from God's methodologies, it's going to mess things up. But he addressed them because this had been God's covenantal model from the time of Adam and on. Nor is this only true in evangelism. In Leon J. Podel's book, and it has some problems with it, but in his book, The Church Impotent, The Feminization of Christianity, he documents that as the church has increasingly geared its teaching and its programs to women, that the men have left. And this has been true in many different countries. It's been true in Japan, where it's primarily a a female church. It's been true in America and Canada and Europe. Uh, He has documented that whenever the teaching of the programs of the church have been geared toward the women or to the children, that the men have left. But he found that the reverse is not true, that both the men and the women become stronger and are more attracted to the church when the teaching has been geared toward the men. It's just an odd It's an odd thing. Fascinating study. Another scholar said, Orthodox Judaism has no crisis of the missing male 
because it more closely follows the ecclesiastical structures of the biblically approved synagogue system. A system where the synagogue is a servant of the covenant community, that's of the family, not vice versa. One Reformed writer, after looking at all the research and the biblical uh, model, said, Preaching should be self-consciously directed to the men of the covenant. Preaching is very powerful. In many contexts, it reproduces its character in the congregation. If preaching is soft, round, pretty, and introspective, you'll have a congregation of women, though they be of both sexes. If it is clear, <laughs> if it is clear, well-defined, direct, and objective, you'll find men drawn to it and women and children too. It's a case of where the boys are, my friends. Preach to women, have women. Preach to men, have men, women, and children. Now, that may be a slight exaggeration. Um, and we don't do things based on pragmatism anyway, do we? But I thought I would start by showing you the results, the statistics. And what I want to do right now is give you the biblical theology that gives the reason for those statistics, that gives a reason for that phenomenon. First reason is that the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of individuals. It is made up of families, right? Biblical society was not made up of individuals. It was made up of families. Over 50 times, the Bible mentions either church uh, covenants or state covenants that are made with the fathers of the families. 80 times. It numbers the members of the church by counting simply the male heads of households. In fact, uh, you'll notice the same thing in Acts. Look over at chapter 4 and uh, verse 4 of Acts. He says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, is he denying that there were women who came to Christ? No, he's already mentioned there were many women who came to Christ. So why is he only counting the men? Because he counts by families. He didn't count by individuals, and the woman is included in the family, is she not? And so you find this phenomenon over and over again. It's true in, Act, in the Gospels. Matthew 14, 21. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides men and children. And so to repeat this theological point, churches are composed of families, not individuals. Society, if it's a biblical society, is composed of families, not individuals. Now, if churches really believed this theological point, it would revolutionize the way in which they structured things. It would completely do away with age-segregated Sunday school. It would do away with children's church. It would affect the way in which they engage in ministry. It would affect the way they vote. How do most churches in America vote? Now, they didn't used to do this, but in our century, in this past century, how do most of them vote? They vote as a democracy where every individual gets a vote. They're not treated as families. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The church is not a democracy. It is a theocratic republic, right? And it is made up of families. And in the Bible... A family only got one vote. Why? Because the church is made up of families, not individuals. Now, I know I've repeated that a number of times, but we need to keep uh, repeating that. Peter was respecting, not diminishing the integrity of the whole family when he addressed the head of that family in his preaching. He was, in effect, saying, look, guys, I respect family government. And I want to reach the whole family. I'm interested in the women. I'm interested in the children. But you men, you better take heart. And he really holds them accountable. Secondly, according to Scripture, 
If the head of the household is addressed, the whole family connected to him is addressed, and they are responsible. Numbers 30, verse 1. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. And then he talks about the vows that the wives and that their children are making. And uh, the whole chapter indicates, even though the instructions were given to the heads of the household, God was indeed speaking to every member of those families, and those family members were responsible. Jeremiah 44 addresses every member of the families, even though he's speaking to the men. Read any standard exposition of the Ten Commandments, which is also addressed to men, and you'll see how this works. Those they, they go on to say, well, he's not just talking to men. And he shows from other scriptures how it works out that God addresses every member in the family when he addresses the, the head of the household. Now, that may mean that a woman or a child who is listening to the words that Peter is speaking to the heads of households, they may believe and the head of household does not believe. First Peter 3 uh, verses 1 through 7 addresses that possibility and it indicates here's some women they thought for themselves they're not doormats they followed the Lord even though their husbands did not follow the Lord but you know even when that happens he still does not treat them as individuals divorced from their families and say okay we're not going to have anything to do with the family God was interested in the family as a whole even if the family was primarily made up of unbelievers he never destroys that family unit Thirdly, passages like Jeremiah 44 and Numbers 30 show that the father, the husband, is responsible for all the actions that go on in that family. Now, Numbers 30 says that if a child or if a wife makes a vow, the husband hears about it and he doesn't say anything about it, maybe a week later he thinks, you know, I don't really like that vow. And he annuls it. He says, no, too late. Because you kept silent on the first day, that vow is your vow. The actions of your family are your actions and you're going to be held accountable. And he is saying to the men of the household, he says, you cannot blame your wife like Adam tried to blame Eve. Now, you're responsible. Now, men don't like this part of patriarchy, do they? You know, the buck stops with you. You're the captain of the ship when the ship goes down. Doesn't matter if it was somebody else that made the ship go down. You are responsible. God holds you accountable. And it means you need to take your leadership of your family that much more, that much more seriously. Okay, fourth, and this is the last reason. This is actually a protection of the family from the encroachment of other governments. There is a constant tendency for civil government and church government and actually other institutions as well to become bloated, power-hungry centers. Almost 80 times in Scripture it mentions the state government. Think about this. The state government being limited by the head of a household. And one of the most moving examples of that was the case in uh, 1 Kings 21 where Ahab wants the property of Naboth. And Naboth says, no, this is a stewardship trust. It's been passed on from me, from my family, and you can't have it. And you know, Ahab went home and pouted. He didn't think he could do a thing about it. And biblically, he couldn't. Now, Jezebel encouraged him to just completely throw off all of uh, the, the distinctions that were left there, but I find that one very remarkable. But there are many times where successfully the heads of household were able to stymie uh, 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 civil government. Now, in contrast 
analyze the ideal of individualism, and I don't care where you analyze it, analyze it anywhere in the world, and you will find that individualism not only weakens the family, but it elevates and strengthens civil government, church government, other forms of, uh, of authority, and it does so automatically. It not only destroys the power of the family, but it automatically elevates the power of something else. It's an inescapable fact. The first country to idealize individualism was France under the French Revolution. I think it's a textbook study on how uh, individualism gone to an extreme leads to incredible tyranny. On the other hand, when other governments are forced to work through, not around, but forced to work through the family, then such encroachments are limited. When you find a church that wants to teach your children and will not allow the parents to participate, and this is the practice of most American churches today, the parents are not allowed in the Sunday school room if they want to be there to see what their kids are being taught. When that kind of thing happens, you've got trouble. Uh, in a marvelous essay on the limits of the church, one Reformed pastor said, quote, power is a commodity subject to the law of scarcity. There's just so much to go around. Find an undue concentration of power in one institution and you'll likely discover it was gotten at the expense of another. How important it is then to strive to keep institutions operating within their God-appointed limits. The untoward amassing of power in the state, for example, is not innocent. It's power taken from another to whom it has been assigned by God. And so the governmental head of the family is being addressed by Peter and is being respected. Now, even with that explanation that I have given, some of this may still feel a little bit fuzzy to you. It's sort of like asking a fish, are you wet? And the, the fish who's never experienced dryness has no idea what wetness even is, right? Because there's not a, been any con contra contrast. And I think we have been so immersed in a culture of individualism in our society, so wet in this culture, as it were, we, we have a hard time even thinking covenantally. And so when we see a scripture like Matthew 28 that says that it's our responsibility to disciple the nations, we don't think nations. We think individuals in the nations. When Acts chapter 4 or Acts chapter 3, verse 25 says, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We don't think, oh, you know, that's a little bit extreme. All the families of the earth? Maybe individuals, you know, from many different kinds of families. We have a hard time. And so here's the admonition I have for you for the rest of this series. Think in the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts through Jewish eyes. If you start reading the book of Acts through Jewish eyes and think covenantally, it's going to open up in a way that it would not otherwise do. That was a long side note from the main theme of the passage. So let's move on. Acts 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, the reason he mentions that David was dead, he was buried, and his tomb is with them to this day is because David could not possibly have been the fulfillment of Psalm uh, 16. It had to be another, and that other was Jesus. But, and by the way, this is a proof that David was not one of the ones who was raised um, in Matthew chapter 27. Remember at the resurrection of Christ, it says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It says many, but not all. Um, Matthew Henry uh, thinks that it was 
uh, just martyrs from the Old Testament who were given the privilege of being part of that first fruits. But in any case, it was a very limited resurrection. So argues Peter, David is still in the grave. Verse 30, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David's body did see corruption. David could not possibly have been the primary referent in, in Psalm 16. Now, the implication is neither could Solomon, neither could Rehoboam, neither could any other dead king. Uh, these verses, I think, are really critical to understanding the enthronement of Jesus on the throne of David. So I want to tear it apart phrase by phrase. Verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet... Now, just as a side note, I want you to notice this is one of 35 times in which uh, Luke defines the term prophet. There is a current theory in charismatic circles that New Testament prophets are totally different than Old Testament prophets. Well, here's one of several verses in Acts that just shows it's absolutely false. Uh, their idea is a New Testament prophet, yeah, he's, he's very fallible. He can make mistakes. He's not like Old Testament prophets. And yet here... Uh, we see that Luke is using the exact same term, prophet, interchangeably with Old Testament prophets who wrote Scripture and New Testament prophets. And you'll see this all through the book of Acts. These two terms are used uh, uh, interchangeably. And so uh, his point is that Psalm 16 was written under inspiration and was predicting the future. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh... So it had to be a literal descendant of David, could not be figurative. It had to be according to the flesh. Now, let me ask a question. Does anybody today know who is a descendant of David according to the flesh? Not a chance. And yet Jews are still looking for the Messiah, aren't they? It had to be during a time when the 12 tribes were distinct tribes that the Messiah would come. And uh, any Jewish rabbi will tell you, nobody knows the genealogies. The tribes are so intermixed, nobody knows from whose tribe they are coming from. So it not only had to be there, but it had to be a time when the family of David was known. Family of David was known in the first century. So anyway, it says... <clears throat> Um, let, let me read you the verse that he takes that from, the, the exact words come from. It's Psalm 132, 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. But notice the next phrase in Acts 2:30, And he would raise up the Christ to sit on his, that's on David's throne. He foreseeing this, foreseeing what? Well, foreseeing that God would raise up the Christ to sit on David's throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. Now, get that phrase. The time that Jesus sits on David's throne is not future. It was at the time of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is presently sitting on David's throne. Now, that may need a little bit of uh, explanation. Uh, are we to think that there was some wooden chair... Uh, that David had sat on that had been preserved until the time of the book of Acts was written and somehow that got taken up into heaven and Jesus is sitting on it. And I would say, no, that's a figure of speech that he is talking about there. <clears throat> to sit on David's throne means to rule over David's kingdom. And now in my footnotes here, I've got a whole page worth, 14 references 
of all of the times when that phrase is used to sit on David's throne, every single one of those is, uh, is a, a figurative of the kingdom. Every one of them. Solomon was said to be sitting on the throne of David, even though the literal throne that he had for ceremonial occasions was a hundred times more glorious than the ceremonial throne that David sat on. <clears throat> and yet he was still sitting on David's throne. Likewise, both David's throne and Solomon's throne are said to be God's throne. Let me read you an example. First Chronicles 29, 23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh as king instead of David, his father and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. Now, the literal throne that David sat on and the literal throne that Solomon sat on on ceremonial occasions didn't look anything like the glorious description of the throne of God in heaven, and yet, because they were representatives of God, ruling on behalf of God on earth, God was sitting on their throne. And they were sitting on God's throne. They were God's representatives is in effect what he's saying. And it's in that same sense that Acts indicates when Jesus sits on his own throne, he's also sitting on David's throne. Amen. Every one of the passages uh, 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 indicates that. Jeremiah, Isaiah have several references to sitting on David's throne long after the physical throne was destroyed. Now, even if you disagree with that, if you take it in a literalistic way, like some premillennialists do, you're still stuck. He had to have been on that throne uh, in the first century. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, uh, last time I already commented on those, um, those words. His flesh was in the grave, but it did not rot. His soul was in Hades, but it was not left there. And I already spent quite a bit of time in describing. What does it mean that his soul was in Hades? Verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. According to Matthew 28, 11 through 15, it was common knowledge that Christ's tomb was empty. Uh, everybody knew it. Even the guards admitted that the tomb was empty. They came up with some excuse that uh, it had been robbed, uh, which was pretty lame because uh, a whole group of soldiers are letting it be robbed. But um, uh, there were many witnesses, 500 witnesses who saw his, his, his being resurrected, many people who saw him ascend to heaven. So they were witnesses. Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God is the highest place of honor. That means he is the second in command, which means what logically? It means he is the enforcer of God's rule. He is the one who has authority over every area of life, all of creation. And of course, that's exactly what Christ said in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven, but I don't have a whole lot of authority on earth. Isn't that what he said? No, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has universal authority. This means he's inherited the kingdom. The, this exaltation of the Son... Uh, of man to the right hand of God was prophetically recorded for us in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And it describes him ascending on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And in this ascension, it says, he came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And so these are incredibly exciting words that Peter is declaring. The kingdom has started. Peter goes on in verse 33. 
Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. John 7, 39 says we couldn't even get the Spirit. We couldn't get spiritual gifts unless he was glorified, unless he was enthroned. And so the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost was a further proof that Jesus has indeed been glorified, has indeed been enthroned, has been given all authority. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And who is David's Lord? It's Jesus. So the Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, David is speaking here of Jesus, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now Psalm 68 verse 18 and Psalm 110 verse 1, which are being alluded to here, both tie the sitting at the right hand of the Father with receiving the kingdom. Now, what troubles so many people is this. If Jesus really did receive the kingdom, how come we continue to have wars? How come we continue to have evil? How come there's so much trouble that is around? And that is answered here in the word till. That word till, sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemies your footstool implies that there is a gradual process of subduing people to his will. Doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's gradual. In fact, you read some of the kingdom parables, you're going to see many of them do what? They're talking about slow, gradual growth of the kingdom. Well, the very next verse in Psalm 110 makes that clear. Let me read you the context. Psalm 110 that he's quoted here. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, according to that passage, when Christ rules, when he inherits his kingdom, there are still going to be enemies around. There are going to continue to be enemies around. He doesn't rule in the absence of enemies. He rules in the midst of his enemies and he gradually over time subdues them to himself. How does he expand his rule? Psalm 110 goes on in verse 3 to say it's by the empowering that comes to a people of volunteers, and that's by his spirit. And then the next verse goes on to say it's through Christ's priestly work. That must go on until all are made vassals of King Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 quotes the verse as well, expands on it, and says, putting enemies under Christ's feet means that they must serve him. In other words, they're going to be converted. Then and only then does Christ come back at the end of history, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Peter goes on. By the way, what I've just described is postmillennialism, in case you're wondering. Peter goes on in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When Christ ascended to heaven, at that point, God confers upon him the titles of Lord and Christ. Uh, commentators point out that um, Jesus didn't use those titles of himself. There are others who did, but Jesus didn't use those titles of himself until after his glorification with one exception, and that's when they adjured him at his trial, speak to us, I adjure you, you know, speak to us, are you the Christ? And he says, you have said it. 
And uh, so this was really the, the time of his enthronement. Now, interestingly, in the Greek, the words whom you are crucified are left to the very end. And so what Peter is doing is he's saying the very one whom all the evidence points to is the Messiah, the very one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, the very one who has inherited all authority, you have crucified. Man, those were terrifying words. And it's no wonder in the next verse it says... Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, let me make an observation here. Speeches by themselves, no matter how eloquent they may be, do not produce this kind of humbling in the hearts of people. The spirit has to be there. The spirit was poured out. He was at work in the hearts of these people and he was quickening them, uh, bringing conviction, drawing them to Christ. And evidence of a change of heart can be seen in the fact they're no longer calling these guys Galileans. They're calling them men and brethren. And it's showing already there's a knitting as God's spirit is preparing them, a knitting of their hearts to these apostles. Notice, too, that it was only when these men were helpless, terrified, and asking for Peter to give help that he gives the answer, the solution to their problems. I think we're far, far too quick to want to jump to the solution when we're giving evangelism to other people. We give a solution before they've even asked a question, right? Uh, we give a solution before they know what the problem is, that they need to be saved. And uh, too many times, uh, modern evangelists, I think, do not start where Peter started. Peter starts with their crucifixion of Christ in verse 23, and then he hammers home point after point of how wicked this was because the very exalted Lord of this history, Lord of the universe, is the one that they have put to death. And he continues to do that in verse 40 with many other words. He testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. He only gave them hope when they were beginning to feel despair. Now, there is a tape on the back table by Ray Comfort that is an excellent, excellent tape showing how this has been the Puritan method. This has been the method in the past that has been the most successful. He gives some excellent uh, illustrations, some excellent scriptures, and he shows this was the method of preaching. This was the method of evangelism that was used in the past. The preaching of the law and conviction is the primary method of the gospel. The solution is only given later. Otherwise, you're picking green fruit. Nor does Peter go straight to faith. Look at verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent. Though repentance by itself does not save a person, um, only faith receives that salvation from God. We're justified by faith alone. It is still clear you cannot be saved without repentance. Why? Because you can't have genuine faith if you don't have genuine repentance. They are two sides of one coin. When you have genuine repentance, it's going to lead to faith. But you can't have faith if there is no repentance. And that's one of the ways where you can see if you have a counterfeit faith. Has there been any genuine repentance in your life? Uh, they are not synonyms, by the way. There is a current theory that's uh, just plaguing the church that says that faith and repentance are synonyms. They're saying exactly the same thing, just in different words. Well, if that was true, how come over and over in the Scripture does it say repent and believe? Repentance and faith. 
They are quite distinct things. And what repentance is, is confessing that we agree that our sins are as wicked and are as terrible as God says that they are, fleeing from our sins and fleeing to Christ. And that's the faith part, is fleeing to Christ as the only solution for our trouble. Well, repentance, uh, if it's saying that we are as wicked as God says we are, that is so destructive to the self-esteem movement, is it not? <laughs> because what he is saying is it's not until we have no self-esteem left that we even see our desperate need for the Savior. We need Christ's esteem, not self-esteem. Prior to that time, our hearts are constantly trying to find our own solutions, hold on to something that gives us at least a little bit of dignity. And God's purpose is to completely wipe that out so he alone gets the glory. And so Peter destroys man's trust in himself by calling for repentance, and then and only then does he call for trust. And this trust is visually pictured by baptism. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind, this is a passage that many cults have gone to and said uh, it's water baptism that saves you, okay? And there's quite a number of people here, and I've just had an argument a couple of weeks ago with a person who was uh, turned right to this verse. Keep in mind that the sign should not be confused with the thing signified, okay? There's a difference between a sign and the thing that is being signified. If you go into a store, and um, it's a donut store, you got a little sign that's uh, on the donuts that says donuts. You don't eat the sign, do you? <laughs> you eat the donut. You have a stomachache. Well, it's the same here. Baptism is the sign of the spirit baptism, water baptism. And we already saw that in John chapter 1, didn't we? John the Baptist indicated that his water baptism could not accomplish what needed to be accomplished in their hearts. I baptize with water, but there is one who is coming after me who will baptize you with the... How's it go? Fire and fire and water? No, fire and spirit. <laughs> one of the two. But he was indicating his water baptism by itself can accomplish nothing. What is it? It is a sign of our faith in something that comes from above. It does not come from below. It comes from above. And so it's pictured... Uh, that faith is pictured by baptism. I agree with Simon Kistemacher and Ned B. Stonehouse, other commentators, that the clause, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, really should be seen as a separate statement. Ned Stonehouse concludes a very detailed study by saying, one may conclude with confidence that Acts 2.38 is not to be understood as teaching that the gift of the Holy Spirit was conditional upon baptism. And there are churches in, in this city, as I said, who, who say, no, it's absolutely conditional. Um, Simon Kistemacher agrees, and he says, A study on Acts on baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit reveals that these two are related, but do not necessarily follow each other. Let me give you just two. I won't go in depth. You can read the article for yourself. Two illustrations. In Acts chapter 10, we see that Cornelius is baptized by the Spirit before he is baptized with water. In Acts 19, we see some people 
who are baptized with water before they are baptized with the Spirit. In other words, it's up to God as to the timing and how he does things. One is simply a sign of the other and they're not necessarily connected, one being conditional of the other. Now, the cool thing, though, about this verse is that it indicates that there has been now a historical transition Prior to this, there could be people who were saved who were not baptized with the Spirit. And there are a number of people in the book of Acts who have that happen. Now, they're indwelt with the Spirit. But the baptism of the Spirit really is an initiation into the kingdom. And the kingdom hadn't started yet. So prior to that time, baptism was separated. Uh, they're baptized by the Spirit in Acts 2. And yet those apostles were already saved. And it's true of a couple of other people who were already saved. But if you take a look... At uh, this verse 38, he indicates that uh, it's, it's changing. Now it's always going to accompany conversion. Repent is the beginning of the verse, and the end of the verse is, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those two are tied together, repentance and receiving of the Holy Spirit. That's the ordinary pattern. The same Spirit that the 120 receive, we receive when we are converted. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So the moment you were baptized into the body of Christ, I mean, the moment you came into the body of Christ, you were baptized into the body of Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, you've been all made to drink into one Spirit. And so this baptism is the initiation into the Messianic kingdom. It's the empowering for that kingdom. And it's not just for a few elites, you know, who... Some people believe in a second work of grace where they try to get baptized in the Spirit later on, but not everybody makes it. No, this is for all. Verse 39, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So that gift of the Spirit is a permanent gift till the end of time, till the second coming of Christ. And interestingly, it's not just to adults, but to their children, not just to Jews, but to those who are afar off. But this baptism of the Spirit is only to those whom God calls and all whom God calls. In other words, whom he regenerates uh, uh, will receive that. Joel said the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, not just Jews. Isaiah 44 talks about the Spirit being poured out on our children. By the way, that's a really cool passage. Isaiah 44, verse 2, talks about the babies being formed in the womb and being born. Then verse 3 talks about baptism with water. And then it goes on to talk about baptism with the Spirit. And they're growing up in uh, verse 4 and then professing faith and signing the covenant in verse 5. But the re relevant phrase is, I will pour my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Now, if the baptism of the Spirit is for empowering, that means that our believing youth, even, have all the power that they need to accomplish God's purposes in their lives. I'm going to try to finish this uh, chapter off next week, but for today, let's just glory in the fact that the long-anticipated kingdom has come and that we are in it. The long-anticipated time where we're taking the world for the glory of Christ has come and that all the empowering that we need to accomplish that task, you have begun it, you finish it, and uh, we glory in it. Father, I pray that you would help us not to be passive, uh, but to be active, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you who works in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Help us to see, Father, it's all of grace. 
And yet that, that does not mean that we are passive. And may we have a, a, a deep yearning, a deep desire to see your kingdom coming, your will being done more and more on earth as it is in heaven. Father, do extend your kingdom, the, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, in our families, in our church. And as we are transformed from the inside out and from the bottom up, may society itself be transformed to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.